Hi, welcome to Sidewalk Talk. I'm Steve Fortunato, founder of Shovel the Sidewalk. We're a marketing firm in, in Buffalo, New York. We help small businesses uh, build their brand, create their advertising. We do it through storytelling, authentic storytelling. And uh, right now, uh, with, that's what we do with this podcast. And we're, we're focusing on, on sharing stories of inspiration, information, education, or, or all of the above. Anything that will help... Uh, people get through this pandemic. And uh, this episode, I'm really, I'm really excited and, and appreciative of, of our guest. He is a, uh, a true American hero on multiple fronts. And I'd like to uh, welcome uh, Dr. Bill Fisher uh, to the podcast. Uh, thanks, Doc, for, for joining us. Thank you. He's coming to us from Houston, Texas. And Doc went to high school in, uh, in Syracuse. He was uh, part of, he's an astronaut, right? Part of the uh, crew aboard the space shuttle Discovery. At one point held the record for the longest spacewalk in history. And uh, if it's okay with you, Doc, I do want to talk about uh, uh, th those times. But I think uh, we want to start with uh, what you're doing with your life now, which is um, helping people and saving lives. You're, you're also a uh, emergency room physician. You're currently practicing emergency medicine at multiple uh, hospitals in Houston. Um, thank you. You're on the front line. So from all of us, uh, thank you for what you're doing in, in saving lives right now. Well, you're welcome. It's, it's what we do, though. And that's our job. I get that. Um, it's, it, times are, 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 are obviously uh, different right now. Um, how, how's it going? How, how are you guys doing? We're doing okay, but uh, we have to assume that every patient we see, whether it's a sprained ankle or a cut, uh, is positive for COVID-19. So we treat them accordingly. We're wearing um, N95 masks. I'm wearing a full face shield. I'm wearing gloves with every encounter. Um, and we're doing the best we can to keep ourselves safe as well as take care of the folks that come in. You know, uh, there's been a lot of talk about the uh, the PPEs and the supplies, the personal protection equipment. Uh, um, there's so much information out there. We, we don't have enough supplies. We do have enough supplies. What are you finding on the front lines? How are you guys doing in Houston? We're okay with supplies, um, but you have to wear them all the time. And uh, we've got enough to, to treat uh, the patients and to keep ourselves safe at the present time. Are you feeling this are you is it the calm before the storm right now yes um everyone tells us the peak is going to hit in 10 days to two weeks but nobody knows we haven't seen a, a huge influx of people like that but we're expecting it and we're as prepared for it as we can be we have no idea what's going to happen how are you so how are you protecting yourself i mean if if our front line goes down we're in trouble so, right? What can? What are you guys doing to protect yourselves? I mean, I have never washed my hands as much in my life. Um, every patient we wear new gloves with. Um, we change our masks frequently. I've got a full plastic face shield that goes all the way down to my upper chest, um, and uh, we don't spend a lot of time in the room with folks. I can do a lot of that by talking to them with six feet away. Uh, it's a little different with things where you have self lacerations. Um, listen to chest, look in ears, things like that. But um, I'm being as careful as I have ever been about anything because this is definitely real. Uh, none of us want to, to suffer the consequences that a lot of health work, 
health care workers have had. We don't want to catch this thing. You know, I, I know you have adult children of your own. Um, they must be concerned about you putting yourself in harm's way right now. And touchingly so. I mean, they've both been so attentive and calling me all the time and asking how I'm doing and telling me how worried they are about me. And, um, um, you know, the older you are, the greater the risk of, of bad consequences from this. And I'm older than most of the doctors I work with. So I'm, I'm, I'm again, everybody is frighteningly careful about this. I mean, it's, it's a real obsession. We're determined to, to take care of folks and not get this thing and, and hope that we're successful. What about, um, I, I see, uh, in maybe a lot of that is in, in New York City, I, I see exhaustion. Is, is that a concern? I mean, when you're exhausted mentally and physically, you're more apt to, to catch something as well. What's the, I don't know what you call, what's the exhaustion situation for you guys on the front line right now? Right now, since we haven't had any physicians who've tested positive or caught COVID-19, we're okay. But the problem's going to arise if one or two of our docs go down. That's going to mean we have to work much harder doing more things, and that will be an issue. It's certainly an issue in New York City. It sounds sounds like a healthcare nightmare there. So what do you, what do you what can um you know, we're not on the front line. What what can the average American citizen do to help? Besides, well, I, I understand. I think if, if people haven't heard about the hand washing and the social distancing, then, then there's a major problem, right? Um, beyond that, what can we do to help those on the front line? First of all, I've listened to the, the president and the, Dr. Fauci and the other people that are holding their daily news conferences. The, the advice is good. Um, Self-isolation and staying in your home is great. We took a walk yesterday and one of the houses nearby had this big pool party going on. I mean, I don't understand if people have to understand this thing is absolutely real. Um, and this is the way you catch stuff like that. Um, so listen, listen to the healthcare advisors. They're giving you good advice. It's tough to stay home and not work, but it's even tougher to get sick and die. So it's real. You know, um, yeah, I've seen, uh, I have seen, uh, unfortunately, where um, it's playtime for the kids. And I'm not talking about just within the same family, uh, that where the parents are like, well, yeah, we'll have your kids come over and they'll play with our kids and then go home. Kind of not exactly the best thing to do right now, right? No, no it's ill-advised. I mean, this is real. How are you going to feel if your kids catch it and the kids maybe get a little sick, but they give it to the grandma who dies? Um, you've got to stay home and mingling families and visiting relatives and stuff like that. Hey, it's a lot of fun normally, but it's a bad idea right now. You know, you've uh, been a doctor a long time. Uh, obviously, You've never lived through a pandemic uh, like this. Have, did you, you know, I, we've always heard, I know Bill Gates was talking about this, you know, years ago saying we're not ready for this. Um, I think there's, we can go back and learn from the mistakes we did. We don't have to talk about that now. But did you ever think that you would see something like this? Oh, yes. Uh, as my kids will tell you, I've had, I've been prepared for this as long as they've been alive. I've always had uh, survival things, enough food to last me a long time, because eventually this does happen. About every century, you get a major pandemic. Spanish flu in 1918. Um, it's going to happen again in our history. It's the first time I've ever lived through it, but it's inevitable that these things happen. Uh, 
And I can't really blame people for not storing massive amounts of equipment, preparing for a once a century type pandemic. What we have to do though is recover, learn from it. And uh, right now we're in full gear producing these personal protective items. And I think we're doing great. It's just uh, difficult to know when your next pandemic is gonna come and it's hard to stay fully prepared for it. I think you said something key. I mean, to me, yeah, even the Spanish flu, that was, that was bad, right? Uh, you know, people with this particular uh, uh, pandemic, we're, we're going to lose some people. We're, but in the end, um, we're going to make it through. Whatever, and there's going to be a normal. I don't know what that's going to be or when that's going to be. But I hope we're taking good notes so we learn from this, right? Right, and we're a lot smarter than we were in 1918. In 1918, they lost between 40 and 60 million people. And an interesting statistic is that more people died from the Spanish flu than all the deaths in World War I, which, which is really astounding when you think about it. We, we're certainly more sophisticated now, but uh, right now this virus has had two strains, um, one a little more lethal than the other. But uh, although we're told this is unlikely by the virologists, um, there's always a chance you can develop a third and more lethal strain. And were that to happen, uh, it would it could really be even more significant than it is now. So you have to prepare for that. Um, and uh, hopefully we can get our vaccines and things going uh, much quicker. There were no vaccines available in 1918. In fact, that was the first real bird flu to ever hit the human population. You know, there's... Um... I did have some, as of this recording today, today is uh, March 30th. Um, I did hear the contagious rate. I, it's an up to, uh, the website is up to date. It's more for clinicians. Uh, so I can't analyze a lot of this stuff, but um, I heard some positive today and that from the data that they have, which is still limited, the contagious rate. So if you are in close contact with someone, the chance of getting it is a half a percent to five percent. Eighty-one percent of the symptoms are mild. Fourteen percent severe. Five percent critical. Fatality rate is over two percent. Right. So those those numbers. The fatality rate is that's very high. In the world, if you look at the Johns Hopkins website, the overall mortality rate for all those cases that, that we know about is four point seven percent. In Italy, it was about ten percent. Um, which is tremendous. I think the U.S. rate was about 1.5% or something around that. Much better than, than other countries. I think Germany is the only one that's doing a little better than we are. Hmm. I, the contagious rate was interesting to me. Only half percent to 5%. I thought this was a very hmm. contagious disease. How do we know that? Because so many, they say people are also asymptomatic completely and yet able to be contagious. So does that include those people? We haven't tested a majority of the population. I don't know. And every time they ask them to be specific, we don't know yet. We're learning a lot about it. Right. I think that's the, that's the, that's where the uh, things get a little bit crazy. It's the uncertainty, right? Uncertainty is, is it can, can drive panic, it can drive, you can make mistakes, you can think irrationally. Um, but that's the reality right now is you, right. you don't know. You're learning, right? We consider in the emergency department, it's a 100% contagious rate if you're not protected. Everybody's got the disease, we pretend, and we try and treat them accordingly. I have no idea whether this, this child that's here is going to give me that problem or not. 
Um, so what else can you do? We're still learning, so I'm gonna be as careful as I can. And it's true for everybody. And it's a real problem for healthcare workers. There's a disproportionate number of deaths. I think 23 ER doctors died in Italy um, so far, maybe more. Um, so it's, it's got our attention. So what about, you know, we hear about uh, some people are saying NASEDs, uh, not good, um, hydrochloroquine, which is Plaquenol. Uh, what, are your, what are your thoughts, number one, on, on hydrochloroquine? What, what, I mean, I, we don't have a lot of information, but do you think there's potential that could be something that helps? For sure, there's potential. They say that uh, zithromaxate, zithromycin may be helpful. Um, all these are potential um, aids to this problem. And the nice thing is Plaquenil, if taken in prescribed doses, is not a dangerous medication, neither is Zithromax. Um, if you take too much, it can kill you. But if you take just a prescribed amount, um, probably wouldn't hurt. If I, if I were positive, I'd probably take it too, because I can't see the downside. Gotcha. All right, sir, let's move on. Um, you are... You certainly are unique in, in all the things that you've done with, with your life. I, I want you to take me back to, you know, we, all kids talk about and dream about, I want to be an astronaut someday. And I would love to be an astronaut except for that height thing. You know, maybe if it didn't have to go so high, maybe I could be that astronaut. So tell me what, you know, you were, uh, you were part of the crew aboard the Space Shuttle Discovery. Really cool stuff. How did you get into... Uh, that field? What, what, what interested you and, and, and what, what made you go there? When I was six, my first grade report card teacher talked about the fact that I was drawing rockets and talking about rockets all the time. She sent the report card home and my mother answered, Billy continues to be very rocket conscious. I flew that report card on the shuttle with me, but it's something I've always wanted to do. And uh, I kind of gave up on it uh, in, the, in the late 60s and early 70s because all the astronauts at that time were test pilots. And uh, I went into medicine um, because I wanted to do it, but also I'd kind of given up on a chance to be an astronaut. And then shortly after I was out of medical school, they started taking scientist astronauts and MD was considered a scientist. And through, uh, through some difficulty and a lot of time, I was able to get in. Can you describe um, what it's like to be out there? Yeah. Um, you have a sunrise and a sunset every 45 minutes because you orbit the Earth every 90 minutes. So you're constantly seeing sunrises, sunsets. Uh, there's nothing, no, no photograph can ever come close to it. Uh, it's unbelievable, constantly moving, purples and golds. Um, and to go outside, I, got, I was outside for about in, in a spacesuit for two spacewalks. One was seven hours and 10 minutes, and the other was just under five, five hours. You, you get to see it firsthand, and um, there's just nothing like it. It's, it's stupendous, gorgeous, and all the photographs you've seen are not going to capture that. Um, we, um, at night, when we're, when we're going overhead, we saw that all the lights of the, of the world are yellowish, kind of like a fog light except for the lights of one city. One city on the planet Earth is a bright white light. And we're thinking, well, if I'm an alien, I'm gonna land there because that's obviously the place. But we weren't sure which that was. Looking at our computer, we finally found out that it was the strip at Vegas. There's so much neon coming through there. It comes through the atmosphere differently. So all the other cities in the world, it's kind of orange, but Vegas is this bright white, pure light. Uh, maybe they have landed there, I don't know. 
<laughs> so, do you have fear of anything? I mean, you're on the front line right now. Uh, you know, during this pandemic, you you're going up in rocket ships. Uh, do you have uh, what is that? You have some kind of uh, you have a, you have a thrill level. What 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 is it that that uh, I mean, obviously, you must like to help people. That must be inside of you. That must be you must. Because by doing the, being an astronaut, sure, it was a rush, but you're actually helping the world. And same thing you're doing now as a doctor, right? That's true. Um, it's probably more apparent as a physician right now um, because we're really there and it, that really has our attention. I must tell you that the big fear we had on the space shuttle was not being able to go, having our, our flight scrubbed or failing at the job we had to do. We had to repair a satellite up there. That actually sounds kind of strange, but that was a bigger fear of, of screwing up or of, uh, of not getting to go at all than of uh, coming back alive. It's strange, but that was what we thought. You know, it was the, the test pilot's prayer is, dear God, please don't let me screw up. And uh, we thought about that a lot. It wasn't, um, it wasn't as, as, as um, to us, even though it may have been statistically, it wasn't as, as life-threatening as this current problem is. Because we are really out there, and um, it's got all of our attention. You've never seen people be more careful and more concerned. This is not no levity in this. It's uh, it's concerning. How many crew members were with you? Five. And we always do two man spacewalks, so I was out with one of the two, one of the five people, and uh, some we've had as many as as seven go on the space shuttle, um, but the average crew was about five, all guys. I was the only non-military guy. How long was the preparation before? Well, I got in, I got in 1980, and really it was we're preparing for the next five flu in 85. So it was about five years. But specifically, you're you're announced to a flight. They'll, the boss will call you and say you're going to fly on this mission. You have a year to prepare. Um, so we'd been generally preparing until then. That's very specific for the next year. And um, that's all you do. And it's all you want to do. I mean, it's a, it's a dream come true for all of us talking to these guys. I wasn't the only guy that wanted to do this when I was six. They were all alike. I mean, it was like uh, we're, we're sitting around talking. So, yeah, I thought that too. Yeah, I was wanting to do it since I was six. Um, it, it's, a, it's a common, uh, was, there's a camaraderie there wanting to do this and do a good job. It was fun to be with them. They were an amazingly competent group of people. Are there commonalities between being an astronaut and, and, and being an emergency physician? I don't know. Um, there's a thing called the MMPI, Minnesota um, Multiphasic Personality Inventory, and ER doctors come closer to policemen um, in terms of, you know, like it's like in the action. Um, but uh, there may be. It wasn't, being an astronaut is mostly hard work on the ground. It's very little time flying. I mean, I was there for 12 years and flew once. Um, happy about every minute of it, but um, it's, uh, it's not really a thrill-seeking kind of thing, except for that one, one chance you get to fly. We were up for eight days. You were up for eight days? Yeah, it was cool. Yeah. Everyone talks about, what about the bathroom thing? What, what, what happens then? <laughs> In fact, after we flew, you go, NASA sends you to make speeches around the country every two weeks. And so many people want to know about the bathroom question. But I stopped speaking about the other stuff. I just have a whole talk about going to the bathroom. And people loved it. Um, I mean, uh, 
for example, the first, it, it was such a, an ordeal to do it right. There's a checklist for going to the bathroom. And the first step is, number one, sit on toilet. And the second step was fasten seatbelt. <laughs> you know, people just love that stuff. I probably can't tell you all the things I would speak, tell them to a crowd, but uh, uh, on the first space shuttle mission, the guys hadn't, didn't, do, didn't work the toilet right. And there was a terrible mess. And um, they had to wait and bring new clothes in for them before they could appear in the public and stuff like that. So after that, um, NASA was unhappy and it made us go through this trainer. They spent a million bucks on a potty trainer, which you had to train on the ground. And you would actually go, go like you're gonna go to the bathroom. Uh, you'd sit on the toilet and you'd look at a TV in front of you. And in front of the TV, there were crosshairs like this. And you had to align yourself. The guy watching, you have to do three satisfactory alignments before you can fly. So it's it's the checklist was was significant, and um, we all had to go through. You had to get a certificate of potty training. I mean, really. Um, <laughs> how would you like to be the guy that sat there and watched all these guys align themselves? Yeah, <laughs> all day long. It's an important job, though, right? Yeah, I'd be like a gastroenterologist, though. You know. Yeah, it'd be a tough gig. What just. Tell me what it's though, what it's, um, what's the, the feeling though? You describe the view. What's the feeling of no gravity of what, what is, I mean, how can you, I'm sure you can't describe it like you would feel it, but get me close. What's it like? When you first get there, I had planned on, I had a peanut butter and jelly sandwich in my pocket. I was getting, we had a lot to do, heavy checklist work. So I was going to eat that and not worry about lunch. About half the astronauts, as soon as they get into orbit, feel sick. It's called space adaptation syndrome. And we all felt sick and nobody ate anything on our crew for three days. Nothing, no water, no food. And that's a normal thing. So um, that part, you, you just, you feel sick. Like you're gonna, and you'll notice the early pictures when people are on the space shuttle, all their heads are upright. None of these flips and stuff like that. You don't want to move. But after three days, you adapt to this. And uh, on the fourth day, I had uh, tea with honey and lemon. It was the first thing I could eat. And then it was like you make up for the four days you didn't eat, um, steaks and everything else. Um, it, was, it was good and everything felt great, but most people don't realize when you first get up there, you don't feel good at all. It's not what you'd expect to hear. Yeah. And, we, and the fourth day we could do the flips and take the pictures upside down and send them home. But boy, on the first day, you don't feel so good. Are we going to be, uh, someday, are we going to be, uh, have opportunities on the moon or on Mars? Uh, you know, if people need to get away from Earth, there's, what, what do you see 100 years from now? I don't know if it'll be a safety valve for population on Earth, but definitely within your lifetime, we'll be on Mars. Um, I dream about Mars as, as all my friends know I, I dream about being on Mars twice a year. I have for my whole life. I can taste the red dust. My kids all know this. Um, Maureen knows this. They laugh about it, but uh, there's, there's something in us that makes us want to go forward. The reason it's go West young men where our ancestors came from Europe. I mean, there's, there's that desire to go forward and explore something about Mars. I, I've always been fascinated by it. There'll be opportunities on the moon too. There are things called lava tubes that may enable us to, to live there at temperate climates. Um, Chinese are working pretty hard to get there too. So there's some competition involved, but Mars is just a start. You think 
in the next 50 years, man will be on Mars. I think in the next 20 years, man will be on Mars. I really do. Wow. Now, it's not, it's not a colony there, but that's human beings being on Mars. Oh, yeah. 20s, 20s, maybe even sooner. Really? Yeah, yeah, I do. It, it, do and, and why do we need to do that? Ah, uh, that's a good question. Yeah, why are we doing this? Um, historically, civilizations that stopped stop exploring died. Um, Spain and England um, helped colonize the New World, and Portugal was one of these. Uh, but Portugal made a decision that was too expensive, and they withdrew. And as a result, their, their world power withdrew with it. There's, not, there's only one country in, I think, South America, Brazil, that speaks Portuguese because they voluntarily withdrew from this kind of thing. So historically, nations that don't go forward wither and die. But why do we do this? It's in our nature. It's in our nature not to sit back. I mean, could people sit on the East Coast and never cross the Mississippi and go to the West Coast? It was just impossible. It's probably the ADD that did this. Um, the ones that were restless and didn't want to didn't want to sit in one place. But it is in the nature of our species to explore, and uh, I don't think you could stop it if you try. It's, we want to go there. It's something instinctive in us, and Mars is just the beginning. So, so positive. Yeah, that's awesome, um, Doc. So I think positivity. Well positivity it, it, it breeds positive action. It, it, it helps people in when there isn't a pandemic, during a pandemic and after a pandemic. And right now we're in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, such an intelligent person. You've done so much. Can you, uh, yeah, and you're so positive about everything. Give, talk to us about one-on-one uh, -on -one, um, something positive that is going to help people understand, you know, I know we're going to get through this, right? Tell me, you know, tell, give someone some type of inspiration, help us out here. Let people know uh, from Dr. Bill Fisher, what you have to say uh, uh, about what will help people understand we're going to get back to normal at some point. We're going to get back to normal. The question is how many people are going to die before we do that? We'll certainly get through it. A lot of people seem to get this as a mild cold or no symptoms at all and, and get better. But if you want to decrease the number of people that, that die, and especially your grandparents and, and your older friends and folks, you want to listen to what they're telling you. Stay, stay isolated and help keep the death rate down. We'll get through it and we'll develop a vaccine and we'll be much smarter as a result. But uh, to minimize the deaths, uh, I think this morning they were saying they expect 200,000 deaths total before this is over with. Um, let's try and keep it down. I mean, listen to what they're telling you. Don't go to pool parties. Don't go to have a coronavirus party like that guy in New Jersey did. Um, we'll get through it, but we want to get through it without uh, losing so many of our loved ones. Great advice, Dr. Bill Fisher. Doc, high school in Syracuse? Or Syracuse High School, yeah. But you didn't go grow up there. My dad was in the Air Force. We moved all around. I was in, in London before we moved from England back to North Syracuse, and I spent 10th, 11th, and 12th grade there. Um, it was fun. I enjoyed it. It was great. Well, Dr. Bill Fisher, uh, appreciate everything you've done for America, for the world, and now on the front lines in, in Houston as an emergency medicine, uh, uh, emergency room uh, physician. Uh, 
stay safe, take care of yourself. We thank you very much for, for everything that you've done, Doc. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. Dr. Bill Fisher has been our guest on Sidewalk Talk. You can uh, download all of our pod, Sidewalk Talk podcasts uh, on your podcast platform of choice, whatever it is, uh, Apple iTunes. But you can also watch all of our podcasts on our website if you just visit shovelthesidewalk.com. Now, if you know of someone, or if you have a story that needs to be shared, share of inspiration, education, information, whatever it is that's going to help us through this pandemic, if you have a story or you know someone that does, there's a form on our website. It's real simple, three sentences, three, three little things you got to fill out, uh, and we'll get right back to you, and uh, we will get that story uh, on the air and, and, and share it with whoever we can. Uh, thanks again to, uh, to Dr. Fisher. Appreciate you. Appreciate what we've done. Thank you for your time. I know you got to get back to work too, and you're going to go save some more lives. So thanks again, Doc. Appreciate you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay. And uh, thanks again for watching, listening, participating. Uh, I'm Steve Fortunato, and this has been Sidewalk Talk.